This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Terence Chorba. He works at CDC in tuberculosis. We'll be discussing the 1918 influenza pandemic and the October 2018 EID cover essay, Concurrent Conflicts, the Great War and the 1918 Influenza Pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Chorba. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. What happened with the 1918 flu? What occurred that allowed this flu to spread so quickly? Well, in the 1918 flu pandemic, sometimes referred to as the Spanish flu, um, it was an exceptionally deadly pandemic. And it was the first of two pandemics in the past 100 years that involved the H1N1 subtype of influenza virus. The term H1N1 refers to two specific glycoproteins or antigens on the virus's surface, hemagglutinin, hence H, and neuraminidase, hence N, on the viral capsid or on the surface. And for this reason, different strains or subtypes are referred to as H1N1, H1N2, etc., depending on the, the types of H or N glycoproteins that are expressed. And in this pandemic, there were about 500 million people, about a, about a half a billion, uh, around the world who were infected, uh, eventually including pe people even out in the remote islands of the Pacific. And the toll in deaths has been estimated to be somewhere between 50 and 100 million, which at the time which would have been about 3 to 5% of the world's population. In terms of the total lives lost, it, it must have been the deadliest disaster in the history of, uh, of, of the human race. As to what it was that allowed this flu to spread so quickly, uh, there was a strong sentiment that the massive troop movements and close quarters for soldiers in cramped congregate settings, as in the circumstances uh, of World War I, hastened the, the spread of the virus. So what strain was it, and why was this flu strain so virulent? The strain of influenza A involved was a subtype of avian strain, H1N1, whose genetic sequence has been successfully determined using tissue samples recovered from a female influenza victim buried in the Alaskan permafrost and from samples preserved from American soldiers who died of flu at the time. As to why it was so virulent, we could talk for hours. There are some papers that support the hypothesis that the viral infection itself was not more aggressive than other well-known influenza strains, but rather the special circumstances of the war scene, with malnourishment, cramped quarters, crowded medical emplacements in hospitals, and lack of hygiene, all fostering bacterial superinfection that killed many of the victims. Remember, it was not until 1935 when we first had the first sulfa drugs that the, we had the first antibiotic useful for treating streptococcal and staphylococcal infections. The majority of deaths in the great Spanish flu pandemic were from superinfection, mostly bacterial pneumonia, for which we now have antibiotics to intervene. Unfortunately, at the time of the First World War, other than some antifungal agents, the only antibiotics that were available were the arsenicals, which were used to treat syphilis. 
So what finally stopped the tide? Um, well, region by region, this epidemic had an abrupt pattern of ending locally. Uh, for example, uh, I've read that in, in Philadelphia, there were about 5,000 people per week in, in the middle of October uh, in 1918 um, who, um, were, who, who died. That was a massive amounts of death. But by the time of the armistice, just a month later, uh, new cases of flu were pretty much gone from the city. And we, so we don't know why it, it came to such an abrupt halt. But one theory holds that the, the virus mutated extremely quickly to a less lethal strain. Um, there was no vaccine uh, against the agent at the time, and so it's assumed that there were mutations occurring that considerably reduced the transmissibility and the lethality of the virus very quickly. What lessons have we learned from this pandemic? Well, the principal lessons that we learned from the pandemic were really programmatic lessons. Um, the accounts of the public health authorities and descriptions of the interventions that um, were put into place uh, to curb the effects of the pandemic at the time really demonstrated a, a total lack of preparedness uh, that pervaded all the attempts to deal with the overwhelming morbidity and mortality that was occurring. Clear orders were generally not being given to public health officials, and transparency in what was going on was often lacking. Um, there was little in the way in, ter in terms of consistent advice with respect to the wearing of masks, mixing in public places, allowing congregate settings to occur like church services or, uh, or community gatherings. And the pursuit of activities of daily living in the community, uh, there was a very, very little guidance uh, that was being given consistently, consistently. And so what we did learn is that to prepare for, for situations like this in future, community plans need to be thought through ahead of time with clear lines of authority and responsibilities and the appropriate roles spelled out for who's supposed to be doing what. So I know with the swine flu and H1N1, um, in the last 10 years here at CDC, the big concern was, could this happen again? Can this happen again? Well, for H1N1, derivatives of the Spanish flu strain resulted in an H1N1 epidemic happening again that was swine origin uh, in its, uh, in, in, it really came from from flocks of swine, um, and it occurred in 2009. That strain contained genes from actually from five different flu viruses, and um, within a year, the World Health Organization was able to declare that that pandemic was over, um, and it probably reflected the fact that there were mutations that existed in this virus that resulted in most of the infections in 2009 and 2010 as being mild, um, similar to seasonal flu, with most of the infectees having a, a pretty rapid recovery. However, it is thought that 
Uh, influenza viruses readily resort, recombine, have point mutations due to their segmented RNA genomes. And so uh, pandemics can occur, but we're in a much better position today with our understanding and, and surveillance of the spread of influenza viruses. We now have some helpful antiviral drugs. We also have uh, anti-cold medications, and, and we have the ability to ramp up production of flu vaccines targeting the specific flu virus strain that may be uh, the particular challenge in a very short time. Okay, so there are better drugs and treatment now, so it's not likely that millions of people will die again, right? Right. Fortunately, we have the flu vaccine with modest to high protection against flu season to season, and the vaccine is intended to address different antigens, so different H's and different N's as they occur uh, in the circulating strains of the virus. Um, with, a, with a new version of the vaccine really being developed twice a year now, depending on the anticipated circulating variants of the virus. One must keep in mind that virus prevalence varies widely between years, so even if all other things were equal, we'd still see effectiveness measures that would still vary from year to year. Fortunately, for those who do get infected, we also have these two principal classes of new antiviral drugs used against influenza. The first group um, first became available in the 1970s, called M2 inhibitors, that disrupt the function of proton channels within the virus, uh, such as amantadine and uh, its derivatives, like romantadine. Uh, and these have activities uh, against some strains of influenza A. The second group that became available in the late 1990s are called neuraminidase inhibitors, and uh, you may know you may be familiar with uh, one of these uh, oseltamivir. These are known to have some activity against strains of both uh, influenza A and B, and when taken soon after infection, uh, these drugs can reduce the the severity of of the symptoms, and. Uh, they may perhaps can be t be taken in certain settings prophylactically uh, to reduce the risk of infection. Um, however, and not surprisingly, there are drug-resistant strains of flu that have emerged to both classes uh, of drug. And, of course, fortunately, we have a, a host of antibiotics that were not available at the time of the First World War for treating secondary infections that could otherwise result in considerable morbidity and mortality, as was seen in 1918. Back then, we did not have antibiotics for treating staphylococcal or streptococcal infections, and which, which accounted for uh, the majority of, of deaths in the face of that epidemic. So what's your area of expertise at CDC? Well, I've actually had wide experience at CDC with infectious diseases, but my current area of expertise is tuberculosis, uh, which was another big killer at the time of the First World War. And uh, I have no involvement in influenza. What pulled me into schooling myself about influenza and writing this article uh, was my fascination with World War I. 
And that was fomented by four things. First of all, I had two uncles who served in the American forces in that war, and one of them was a machine gunner who got influenza at the time, and he was wounded in an, in an artillery exchange. And so a bit of the family mythology revolved around him. Second, uh, I have always had a great admiration for the poets uh, of that war. Joyce Kilmer, Siegfried Sassoon, Rupert Brooke, uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, Wilfred Owen, and, and my favorite, John McRae, who was a Canadian poet and physician who served in combat in Belgium. And McRae was best known for writing the poem In Flanders Fields. And many, many, many of you in the audience, I'm sure, know, know the poem. Uh, in Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarcely heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw a sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up your quarrel with the foe. To you from falling hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. And you know, the, the, the poppy is always used um, for... Uh, a remembrance uh, of uh, around times like Memorial Day and uh, and Veterans Day. McRae wrote those those words back in 1916, early in the conflict, at a time that there was romanticism for involvement in the war, and before the truths of the awesome carnage, the the huge pandemic, and and the suffering, uh, all uh, came to light. Um, sadly, he died of meningitis uh, in a tent hospital in Belgium uh, in early 1918. The third uh, uh, inspiration to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, learn more about, uh, about the, the First World War and, and, uh, how, and it's not just its causes but uh, its effects and, and what transpired in the war was that I read a bestseller uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, uh, history by Barbara Tuchman, uh, written in 1963, *The Guns of August*, and the, the beginning uh, starts with the funeral of Edward VII and the crowned heads uh, of all U of all Europe coming together in in 1910, and uh, then uh, the, the the fascinating book it then carries you through the entirety of the war. It's a great read, and if you haven't read it, go read it. And, and you'll be glad you did. And the fourth, of course, um, was really the, the substance of, uh, of this article, is the art of John Singer Sargent. Um, that's always fascinated me. Uh, Singer, uh, Sargent was a, an American who um, persisted as a, a realist in Europe during the golden age of uh, Impressionism. Uh, and in his mid-60s, he was commissioned by the British to document the Anglo-American effort at the end of the Great War in northern France. Uh, only um, himself to develop uh, influenza during the peak of the epidemic. And he documented his hospital stay with a wonderful watercolor that's the subject of the article that prompted this interview that we're having now. How does the painting speak to you in, a, in relationship to the 1918 pandemic? In relation to the pandemic, Sargent's painting, The Hospital Tent itself, could be viewed as a bit of commissioned propaganda 
an activity in which hundreds of artists on commission or on orders were engaged on both sides of the trenches. The painting portrays no carnage, no deprivation, no disorder. The setting is inspirational in keeping with the desires of the British War Ministry that had commissioned Sargent. And it is devoid of the horrors of the conflict or the ubiquitous amplification mechanisms for infectious disease transmission that war provides. Mass migrations, crowding, forced congregational living, poor ventilation, malnutrition, and poor sanitation. I chose the painting because its theme was one of a field hospital from the perspective of a convalescing patient in that epidemic and gave me a springboard to talk about the centenary of the pandemic itself. So on that note, would you care to read the October 2018 cover essay that you co-wrote, Concurrent Conflicts, the Great War, and the 1918 Influenza Pandemic? Sure, I'd be happy to. The generation that endured through it was perhaps the most devastating epidemic ever, the great influenza pandemic of 1918, is now gone. The influenza strain of that pandemic infected about 500 million people, one-third of the world's population, with extraordinarily high pathogenicity and virulence. The result was staggering mortality. An estimated 20 to 100 million lives were lost worldwide. The estimate of deaths of Americans attributable to influence in that pandemic is 675,000, the majority of whom were among those uh, from ages 20 through 40 years. During World War I, the Great War, three influenza-associated mortality waves occurred in Northern Europe, beginning in early summer of 1918 and extending over the course of a year. Influenza accounted for more fatalities than military engagement. The highest point of combined influenza and pneumonia mortality occurred in October 1918. At that time, the pandemic strain became known as the Spanish flu, so-called because neutral Spain lacked war censors and was the first country to report on the pandemic publicly. However, the geographic origin of the causative organism remains an enigma. Among that generation was the artist John Singer Sargent, who was born in Florence in 1856 and raised principally in France, the child of two Americans, an eye doctor turned medical illustrator father and an amateur artist mother. Homeschooled and trained at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, he enjoyed a storied career, principally as a portraitist. In early summer 1918, late in his renowned career when living in England, Sargent was invited back to France on commission by British Prime Minister Lloyd George, Field Marshal Douglas Haig, and the British Department of Information War Memorials Committee to depict the Anglo-American effort in the war. During late September, while preparing sketches for his iconic painting, Gassed, in a military camp near Roussel in Peron, France, Sargent fell ill with influenza. Sargent was cared for and convalesced in a hospital tent in France. He wrote that he lay there with the accompaniment of groans of wounded and the chokings and coughing of gassed men, which was a nightmare. It always seemed strange 
on opening one's eyes to see the level cots and the dimly lit long tent looking so calm when one was dozing in pandemonium. Sargent's hospital experience inspired the image featured on this month's cover, Interior of a Hospital Tent. This watercolor depicts the interior of a hospital tent with military cots arrayed in file on the side, covered with blankets in a mix of red for the contagious cases and brown for the convalescing or non-influenza cases, two colors that must have dominated the entire war hospital environment. The scene is actually one of tranquility, a respite from the chaos and carnage of war. In one bed, a soldier lies reading, his head bolstered by pillows. In another, a soldier sleeps on his side with an open tent flap behind him, his bed bathed in light from the world of the healthy. Beyond them, there are three or four more cots with soldiers reclining in varying amounts of darkness and light. Above all, in varying shades of military brown, is a great propped tent canopy. Sergeant remained hospitalized for a week, but unlike so many of the much younger soldiers, he recovered and returned to his task of documenting what he saw. At the outset of his journey through France in July 1918, he had written that the best material for his commission would be to see a big road encumbered with troop and traffic, combining English and Americans. By mid-October, in northern France, Sargent had had his fill of war. He wrote, I've wasted lots of time going to the front trenches. There is nothing to paint there. It is ugly, meager, and cramped. I have seen what I wanted, roads crammed with troops on the march. It is the finest spectacle that war affords. By the end of October... Sargent returned to Britain to complete the several works for which he had been commissioned. What he had seen firsthand and documented from his experiences in the conflict were the amplification mechanisms for infectious disease transmission that war provides, crowding, migration, and poor ventilation and sanitation. Because there were no vaccines available with proven safety and efficacy to protect against influenza, and no antibiotics to treat secondary bacterial infections from influenza or wounds, there were few public health measures available to counter the spread and devastation of the pandemic. Whether the great pandemic tipped the balance of power toward the cause of the Allies, such that surrender came in November 1918, remains a matter of debate. The theory that one conflict had a significant impact on the outcome of the other, is supported by data published from archives in Austria, which indicate that waves of morbidity and mortality from influenza were experienced both to a larger extent and earlier among the central powers, that is Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria, than among the Allies. Unfortunately, the pandemic was not limited in its geographic reach, and through 1920, it exerted a tremendous toll on morbidity and mortality and created economic and social burdens both elsewhere in Europe and throughout the Americas, Africa, Asia, Australia, and the Pacific. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Chorba. Listeners can read the October 2018 article, Concurrent Conflicts, the Great War, and the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.